With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, and this is Life Lessons, a podcast spotlighting women who have incredible careers within a single field or industry. We talk about everything from how they got their start to the best things they've learned along the way. Today, I am so delighted to share that Greg Renfrew, the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter, is in the studio with me. She's a serial entrepreneur who has been starting companies since she was in college and has a long history of creating, selling, and leading companies, including her current focus, Beauty Counter. For those of you who don't know it, Beauty Counter creates safer skincare, cosmetic, and beauty products and refuses to use over 1,600 questionable ingredients in its products, ingredients that are standard practice with most companies, might I add. The company is thriving, to put it mildly, with over $80 million in funding, plus two brick-and-mortar stores she opened this year, a seasonal pop-up in New York, 45,000 independent consultants who do peer-to-peer selling, plus a booming e-com business. Not bad for a company that debuted product in 2013. Greg is going to tell us all about her journey, so now, with no further ado, it's time for our next episode of Life Lessons. So let's start at the beginning. What did you study in school and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I studied at the University of Vermont and I studied English as my major. And I did that because I wanted a strong command of the English language. I thought it was interesting. I also loved to read. I did then. I do now. And then I was an art history major, a minor, which I think I practically failed. But, you know, (laughs) I do like art, I guess. I don't know much about it, but it was a fun thing to minor in. So your entrepreneurial journey started quite early. I read that you started a house cleaning business when you were still in college to help pay for study abroad. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So I think that my earliest, you know, work and entrepreneurial endeavors started, you know, uh, yeah, in probably before college, you know, I was always the person that was working the dinner parties that, you know, babysitting for families, doing anything I could to make a little bit of extra money. When I got to college, I was introduced to a program called Semester at Sea that a couple of my friends who were a few years older had done. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like I could actually see the entire world. How amazing would that be? And so I went to my mother and said, I want to do this. And she said, that's great. You can absolutely do it. But you need to figure out how to pay for the incremental cost beyond what what I'm paying for you at the University of Vermont. And so I went to Nantucket that summer, which, by the way, is an incredibly nice island and and, and lots of money. So what to do on Nantucket but to to charge people to clean their houses because I figured they're on vacation. They have money. They don't want to clean their homes. And so – I cold called all these brokers and said, can I clean your homes? 
you know, clean these rentals. I mean, like, what did you know about house cleaning? You know, I didn't really know that much about it, but I think it was part of my family responsibility was to help clean our home. And I also had lived in my cousin's the year prior and had to clean as as exchange for my quote unquote rent with my aunt said, you have to clean our house. So I knew how to, you know, I knew how to, I know how to move a vacuum around. I certainly know how to scrub a toilet. And this is embarrassing because now I run a skincare business that tries to keep us out of the sun. But in those days, it was like, how can I do a job that allows me to go have fun at night, make good money during the day and have flexible hours so I can go to the beach, you know, from like 12 <laughs> to 2 to get a tan, you know, priorities. But it was it was great. So I I read that you started working in sales right out of school, including a job that involved selling Xerox copiers in the jewelry district of Manhattan. I have to ask, <laughs> how was that? I mean, I know the jewelry district yeah. in Manhattan. I used to go through there when I worked for Elle when I was um, right out of college. It's a very specific community. And how in the world were you selling Xerox copiers? So I want you to know that I shared this job with Howard Schultz. Also, I think his first real job was doing the exact same thing in the exact same district. So maybe that'll bode well for Beauty Counter <laughs> in the future. I'll be the next Starbucks. Um, I think that it was funny because I, I started – my very first job was in advertising, and I immediately racked up credit card debt. My mom said, well, figure out how you're going to pay those bills because I'm not going to. You're on your own now. I switched over to Xerox because I heard they had the best – sales training program in the country, and I was immediately assigned the jewelry district. And I am, you know, at that time, a 23-year-old white kind of preppy girl who um, was Christian. And I'm not a particularly religious person, but I bring this up only to say that this was run by a group of significantly older Orthodox Jewish men who, by the way, didn't need copiers. So it was a complete disconnect. So I would go in there and they would slam the door in my face and laugh at me. But I finally, you know, and I think this is one of those learnings in life, right? All business is about people, and I learned to under I learned their culture. I understood the art of negotiation with these particular men, and I learned that if I said I don't want the deal anymore, and I walked out the door, that that's the minute they would sign. And so <laughs> I developed this great relationship with all these guys, and I became one of the top salespeople in the country that year for you know really focused on this district that didn't need copiers. That's pretty impressive, to put it mildly. It was it was fun. It was really, you know, I like that challenge of getting no, going from no to yes. And they were the, the perfect people with him to do that. The ultimate no to yes. Absolutely. So then to fast forward a little bit. So you were in sales and I read all over the world. But then you decided to start the wedding list in 1997. When, and you were really an e-com pioneer in so many ways. And I know you ended up selling it to Martha Stewart a few years later. Can you tell us a little bit about that business? What worked? What didn't work? What was too early? Yes. Everything. Well, I mean, clearly it didn't work because it, it's not a household name today. But I think I, you know, I was going like anyone in their 20s. I was going to all these weddings. And like anyone in their 20s, I had no money. And I was asked to wear all these bridesmaids dresses, which I hated. Right. So I started this bridesmaids dress company with a friend on the side and then was immediately transferred to London with my day job. During that period of time, I was trying to sell bridesmaid dresses in London and was introduced to the founder of the wedding list, Nicole Hindmarch, whose sister Anya, you probably know from yes. the handbag designer. And Nicole had this interesting concept of wedding registry, but it was at that time, you know, all still still focused in the physical world in stores. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting concept. It allows it was a concept where the bride and groom could put together a list, but then actually they didn't get the presents right away. They actually accumulated a sort of virtual bank account and then at the end could go back and say, I want eight of everything instead of 12 of these and two of those. So I brought that concept to the States and incorporated the internet because I thought 
at the end of the day, you know, buying a wedding gift is it's like a commodity. You know what you're comfortable spending. But that was it was hard because no one was selling online then. I was going to say, like, what vendors or retailers did you work with at that point in time? So when I started, I was able to leverage the success of the wedding list in the UK. And they'd done some of the kind of so-called royal weddings or members, you know, of the royal family, a lot of the who's who of London. So we had that credibility. And so they had already worked with some of the top manufacturers, whether that was, you know, Wedgwood China or Cuisinart or, I mean, you name it. I mean, they had all the best brands, but those brands were controlled by the department stores in New York City, mm-hmm. Bergdorf's, Bloomingdale's, et cetera. Yeah. And those guys all had the wedding registries. So When I started the wedding list, I had to go convince them that not only they needed to open up distribution to us, even though they had this geographic limitation with these other stores, but that also that we were going to be selling these presents online. We did have a physical presence in New York City, and that was really for the bride and groom, but everyone else immediately went online to buy the presents. And we were able to convince the manufacturers, and sort of in the same way I did, you know, years later with Beauty Counter, trying to say, imagine the possibility of where this is going mm-hmm. and getting people on board with that. And what was challenging was that was really more the venture capital market and the investment community who couldn't get their head around people shopping for wedding presents online. So you got funding for it early on. We did. But it was really difficult because it was difficult for two reasons. I was young and relatively naive in in terms of raising capital. It was completely dominated by men. The minute you said wedding registry, even though it was a $35 billion industry, the wedding industry, they just their eyes glazed over. And then secondarily, I was trying to convince people that we're going to have a multi-channeled retail business that was focused on people purchasing wedding gifts online, which, again, it sounds like a no-brainer today. We were one of the very, very first multi-channel retail companies in the U.S., so it was hard. How did you figure out how to build the tech piece of it? Oh, God. You know, I have no idea now. I mean, I, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you're dumb and you just hire your friends and you figure it out and you pull a bunch of all-nighters and some, someone finally figured out how to, you know, link things up and it worked. I mean, I don't even remember how we built it. We, but, you know, we had a couple of guys that um, had come over from a, a consulting firm that did a lot of the e-commerce. They had been working with William Sonoma and some other mm-hmm. companies that had, you know, you know, just launched their e-commerce platforms. And so we were able to steal a few people. And one thing I'm really proud of is we had live chat wow. in 1998. So I was proud of that. That's pretty impressive. So what were your biggest takeaways from that business about what worked and what didn't work? I think there's so many things. Well, first of all, the thing that I did wrong, and I've I've said this so many times to people since then, is that when you're asking someone for money for your company, and I'm sure you've gone through this, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And there is, there's more capital today in the marketplace than there are great ideas and great operators. And I think one of the mistakes that many entrepreneurs make early on is they're so scared because they need the money to build their businesses, that they agree to terms and to people that are whose interests are not aligned with theirs, who don't really completely non- buy into the concept or whatever it is. And I, and I made that huge mistake, and it cost me dearly because I was in, I ended up, you know, being forced to, to sell my company prematurely because my investors got spooked with the dot com blew up, blow up, even though we had exceeded every single revenue projection and we were we were on fire. And I, so that's that was one huge learning. That's frustrating when it's like non-strategic partnerships in that way. It was really depressing. I and mean, I do remember with a day that we sold to Martha Stewart, I mean, I just cried and cried and cried. And it wasn't that that wasn't a successful in, – in theory, selling to Martha was a successful outcome because she had an incredible content engine and she had this great weddings magazine and we had this great registry. So it did seem – seemed in theory like a perfect marriage, but it really – it just didn't work out that way. Um, and so that was depressing to me. Well, you felt like it was a premature move, it sounds like. 
It was a premature move for us, and I think it was also really difficult because at the time, they were really a content company. And there's a huge difference between manufacturing product, distributing product, retail stores, and providing content on how to make your table look beautiful or your wedding beautiful. This is a totally different business. So I think it was their first acquisition. It was extremely difficult for them, and it was extremely difficult for us. It was also really hard for me individually because the wedding list had been built largely around me as the founder and the CEO of the company, and I was a young woman you know, getting a lot of press for that at that time. And the entire Martha Stewart business was built around Martha. Mm-hmm. And so that there and there was a conflict right out of the gate. You know, who who was this going to be about? Was it going to be now all about Martha or about me? And I think that was also part of the problem. That makes sense. I can't imagine what it would be like to work with Martha Stewart. Um, what were some of the big takeaways from that time? I think there were some things that I learned from Martha in both good and bad ways. I think Martha is an incredibly talented woman, obviously extremely driven, incredibly successful, incredibly difficult. I think she would admit that. What I learned from Martha is what I thought she did so brilliantly back in the day was she could take an ordinary average American woman like me and she could make that woman extraordinary in her home on a budget by showing her – the way in which to create a beautiful dinner party, to be a great mom by cutting out, you know, Halloween costumes and making them yourself on a budget. I know these things seem so obvious today, but when she really built her empire in the late 80s and in the 90s, no one was doing that. I learned from her how that the that creating opportunities for women specifically is good business for a lot of different reasons. I think on the challenging side, she just was she was constantly picking at things in an extremely negative way and that created this incredible culture of fear. And I and I we all do this as founders, we can be nitpicky, but I think she did it too too much and too often and I think that made for a very challenging work environment and so I was I was difficult cuz she'd say, "Who picked out that, you know, ugly purple flower?" and I'd say, "You did yesterday." Remember in that meeting and no one would ever say that to her. So I drove her crazy. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to see her in a couple of weeks, I think. And I'm, I, I haven't seen her for a long time. That'd be funny. That's so interesting. So I'm also curious as about your personal journey, because going from being a female founder, having running your own company through a sale and then being sort of swallowed up into this larger corporation, I'm assuming reporting to someone after having been really the lead what was that like? Because it sounds very tricky on a personal level. I think on a personal level, I work, I, when I sold my company to Martha Stewart, I worked directly for Martha and also for Sharon Patrick at the time, who, who at the time was the chief operating officer. And they never saw eye die on anything. So I had two bosses. And no matter what, I was screwed because <laughs> no matter what, what I, which way I went, I was in the wrong with one of the two of them. So that was really tricky. And it was really hard for me to you know, have it be my baby, kind of all about me. So there was some arrogance there. You know, I was I was a lot cockier then than I am today. I think I think many young people are. You think you know everything. You don't, but maybe you know a lot. And I was really proud of my team and all yeah. that we accomplished. We did a lot of really great work together in the in the few years that we were on our own. I also am not good with bureaucracy. I just I can't deal all with the paperwork. I'm like one of those people like cut to the chase. Like what do we do? I want to go from A to Z. I don't want to care about B, C, D, E, and F. Many founders are that way, right? You just yeah. you know where you want to go. You don't really care how you get there. You just yeah. like that's where we're going. Whereas at Martha, as with any larger corporation, it was extremely methodical. There are lots of layers, process. decisions, process, process, process. And I think that drove me absolutely nuts. And I think I, I, you know, I stayed there for a year, but I think I quickly learned that I'm not, not as good at being like just a spoke in the wheel in a huge corporation. 
So what did you do next? So you stayed, you said, a year. I stayed a year. And then you're like, nope, I'm out. The minute my contract was done, I, I left. And I actually went to Africa with my husband, who's South African. And I went and volunteered in the townships in Cape Town. I needed to get out. I needed to completely clear my head. And I needed to give back. And it was amazing to be in South Africa at, you know, in that time in our lives. But it was also, again, amazing because it was just an incredible life lesson to see how people with so little – yet have so much at the same time. It was a good humbling experience for me. So I did that, and then I came back and started doing a lot of consulting because I didn't really know what my next job was. I mean, I think at the end of the day, one thing about entrepreneurs, good ideas don't come to you every single day. It's not like you have your next big thing tomorrow. So, you know, I started to do different consulting because I thought, well, I'm going to learn a lot about a lot of things, and people were calling me all the time. So let's talk about consulting because to me, as someone who's never really been a consultant, it sounds super sexy. Like people are going to come to you because they want your ideas or your knowledge in some way, and they're going to pay you a ton of money. And then you can come in and sort of be like a day player, and then you go off and do your next thing. But the more I think it through, I'm like, but then there's there's no certainty about it. How do you know how to price something? Does anyone actually take your ideas? How does it all work? And and you said it was mostly inbound for you. So that's sort of solved problem number one, which is how do you even get business? I think, I, you know, I think I got business at the time because I'd had this success or I'd say perceived success, right? They see I sold my company to Martha Stewart. They think I'm a gazillionaire and everything's yeah. perfect, right? So I got a lot of incoming phone calls, which was great. And what I did think- they want you to do? Everything. I mean, people wanted brand strategy, organizational restructuring, you know, inspirational leadership for younger women at the time, um, how to do multi-channeled retail. And I think one of my very first consulting deals was with Intermix, which was just starting out at the time. They were probably my best consulting client because they were the ones that actually listened to everything I said. They they were entrepreneurs who were on a tight budget. So every dollar they spent, they wanted it they weren't going to pay me and then not listen to me. And then the things that they listened to, they worked. They only had three or four stores at the time, and, and we rebranded the whole thing, changed everything, and that was really fun to do. I do think that you don't ever make nearly as much money on consulting as you think. I mean, maybe being a McKinsey do, but as an individual, you never can clearly, you never can quite anticipate how much work is going to go into something. So if anyone is, you know, anyone that listens that is thinking about, you know, going into consulting, just know that you should charge a lot more than you think because you'll end up putting so many more hours into it than you actually end up getting paid for. Mm. It's just the nature of the beast. What I liked about consulting was it afforded me the opportunity to see a lot of different businesses from a lot of different angles. And that's a great learning experience. What I didn't like about consulting is the two things you asked about. Number one, oftentimes people don't listen, Mm -hmm. and that's frustrating. And you aren't the operator. So if you love to like roll up your sleeves and actually build the business, that's hard. You can only give advice. And then walk away. And then walk away. So how long did you do that? And what was the plan? So I did the consulting in you know in New York for a couple of years, and then one of the consulting jobs that I had, which started with Bergdorf and then went on to a company called Best & Company, which at the time was owned by Tommy Hilfiger. And then about a year later, Tommy called me and said, I need a CEO for Best & Company. Would you be interested in the position? I mean, I was so flattered. It was like such an honor to get that phone call from Tommy Hilfiger. I mean, God, I was like in heaven. But I think also... I should have seen that there was a pattern of a lot of people going through as leaders of that company. And so I probably didn't see the writing on the wall. wall. I think I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm much older and much, much wiser now. I mean, you know, when when something seems like it's too good to be true, it is. And, you know, it was like an incredible equity position, a great salary, a new car. It was an old heritage U.S. brand that I'd actually worn when I was a little girl. So there was so much there. There was a richness of the story. And I thought, wow, we can reinvigorate this incredible American brand. 
the reality of the situation was that it was led by, you know, Susie, who was an incredibly creative woman, super, super strong creatively, but was not necessarily a business person. And I think that our interests were misaligned. I was there to turn it into a profitable enterprise and to grow it. And she was there to drive the creative side of things. And it just didn't work very well. And it was it was challenging. And I ended up getting fired. Tell me about that. Well, that was a good day. I got fired uh, in the best in company offices in New York City. I was in the middle of a team meeting. I was a CEO. There were, I don't know, 50, 60 people in front of me. And a messenger came in and said, are you Greg Renfrew? And I remember the moment being like, yes, I am. And then, holy shit, I open up this envelope and it's like, you're fired. You know, you need to exit the building. Why so dramatic? I don't know. Because I think that – because at the end of the day – Susie's a really nice person, but she also cannot deal with confrontation. And she wasn't happy with my performance or she didn't like the direction I was taking the company. I don't, I'll never really know. That was but the entirety was of your feedback? So that was – it was just like, you're out. You're fired. And it was a huge shock to the system. I, mean, I remember going to – calling my friend and, you know, crying my eyes out for, for days. It was, it was like the day before Thanksgiving too. So I think I went away for Thanksgiving and just cried the entire weekend. So you had no idea that was coming? I knew that we weren't getting along very well. I knew that there were provisions in my contract that uh, that I could be fired, but I had no idea it was coming when it did. It was a pretty shocking moment. So what was your recovery from that like? How did Alcohol. you get through it? <laughs> <laughs> I drank a lot of wine and I shamelessly cried on my best friend's shoulder. And I really, I had also just found out I was pregnant with my second child, my son. And so I kind of just leaned into family for a little while. Like I just, it it was right around the holidays. I took a couple months off, and I don't know. I was reeling. It was hard. And I think, you know, one of the things I think is oftentimes happens is when someone gets fired, it's sort of like a divorce, right? There are those that side with one person. There are those that side with other. Well, of course, people don't want to lose their job. So all these people that I thought were really loyal to me mm. and that I had hired and that I had groomed and developed, some of them I didn't even hear from, and that was really hurtful. But at the end of the day, look, I mean, you know— I mean, Steve Jobs was fired from his own company. I mean, I think it's actually a valuable lesson. And, like, I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I was cocky. I came out of the wedding list. I think I thought I knew more than I did. I think that I've learned how to better work with creative people and to create environments in which you can give constructive criticism without publicly embarrassing someone. And so, look, I think I did a lot of things wrong. And getting fired was probably one of the better things that happened to me. I didn't think so in the moment. But... You know, I'm still standing. <laughs> Clearly. And I think, you know, one of the things I think we all do, we all hold on to people too long. It's the same with romantic relationships, right? It is. Loyalty has been the bane of my existence in friendships, in relationships, and in work relationships. If I am invested, I stay way longer than I should. I stayed longer in my position at L than I should have. I have had people on my team who have stayed longer because I want to make it work. For some reason, if I have to fire them, it's my own failing that I mm-hmm. haven't given them what they need or I've done something wrong. Same thing with friendships that have turned toxic. I finally started letting go of some of that, I think when I hit like my mid-30s or early 30s, where I was like, nope, not doing this anymore. But it's it's paralyzing. It is paralyzing. You know, people always say, well, why didn't you fire that person? And I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to throw it back to you. How many, I, mean, I did this, I teach a guest lecture at Stanford Business School, and we always do this, talk about this case study. And I always say, okay, well, how many of you guys are in a relationship that went on six months too long? It was really sexy on Friday night and Sunday morning, you say you have to break up. We've all done this. We've done it in our personalized, your point, personal, professional, we've all been there. And I think that I've now learned that that just it just doesn't work. It's true. So that was a big takeaway. 
from yeah. that time. Um, you leaned into family afterward. And then what happened? Did you go back to consulting? Well, I had two things happened. And there, there, one is I went back into consulting. But the other thing is I was having babies and I had a caregiver who was uh, working at our home who had been our nanny, um, which we were lucky enough to have a nanny. Both my husband and I had full-time jobs and we'd hired this young woman to take care of our oldest daughter. And she was diagnosed at 31 with a non-HPV-related cervical cancer. And so when I was let go, she had, I guess, just been diagnosed a few months prior. Anyway, I spent the next six or seven months of my life basically holding her hand until she died, which was one of the worst experiences of my life. In fact, probably even harder than when my dad died. Somehow it was she was so young and I was so in the thick of it. And I think having I had my son and then... Three days later, Cindy died. And so that whole period of time, I was consulting, but I was also dealing with being pregnant and a, and a mom of a young child and, and trying to help save this person's life, which is – it's important because it was one of those moments that led me to the beauty counter, to really thinking about what what's going on in the world, that this young, incredible woman is is ill, and I couldn't figure it out. So what happened next then? In March of 2008, we were transferred to Los Angeles. And at that point, I'd become very impassioned with the environmental health movement. It started for me when I watched An Inconvenient Truth in 2006. I was then making all these changes in my life in New York. Then Cindy was diagnosed and subsequently died. And so I moved out to L.A. with my husband's job and also with my eyes wide open about, wow, things are going terribly awry. I tried to get our family settled, and then I started consulting in Los Angeles. So back to consulting. You were working with Jessica Alba, right? I worked with Jessica Alba for approximately a year. She um, had hired me because she knew of my experience in children's and in clothing. And at the time that she and I met, she was looking at the possibility of, is it a children's clothing company? Is it like a non like she was, she was exploring that. She was in that exploration phase. And so we spent the better part of a year working together trying to understand what are the opportunities for her in the marketplace. And I think we both agreed that anything that touches your baby for the first few years should be non-toxic. It was a passion of mine. It was a passion of hers. And so I helped her think through those some of those strategies. And ultimately, then she went on to start the, the Honest Company. I was not part of that part of it. Got it. Okay. So how at what point did you start thinking about Beauty Counter? I started thinking about Beauty Counter uh, sub- sort of subsequent to that. I think I was – during that entire period of time during which I was at Best & Company – in L.A. and working with Jessica, I had, was obsessed with, you know, the environment, t- toxic products, trying to learn as much as I could, trying to figure out what was an opportunity. And when Cindy was diagnosed, you know, one of the things we did was we helped raise money for her. And one of the things that that afforded her was the opportunity to go to the Mayo Clinic, who was like, look, this is environmental. Do not microwave this. I mean, they, they had like this whole list of things of why she would have gotten ill, which made me start making sweeping changes in my life. And I wow. got rid of, you know, I got rid of my plastic containers. I stopped microwaving things in plastic. I mean, all the things I just didn't know. Took my started to take off my shoes the door. And Cindy was the beginning of that. And then, you know, on and on and on, I started to say, okay, what has changed? Why are people getting sick? Why are my friends in New York getting diagnosed with different types of cancer? Why are my friends having struggling with fertility? Why are kids being born all around me with, you know, walking around with EpiPens? I mean, these things are not things I grew up with. And so I, I did... I did connect the dots, and the one thing over that period of time I could point to was our exposure to toxic chemicals. So, yeah, I could find 
seventh generation or I could wash my, you know, floors with water and vinegar. I could find glass containers versus plastic. But when it came to skincare and cosmetics, what was I going to use? There were all the traditional brands that I'd always known and loved. And, you know, look, I never, I didn't work in beauty, but I'd worked in New York in fashion, whatever. Like, I, I liked that look. I, you know, I cared about how I looked and the mm-hmm. product and all that. So I couldn't find those products. I could find these really earthy, crunchy eco brands or I could find Or it's these, like stinky. Yeah, or it just doesn't work. It didn't separate. It didn't look very good. And I thought, right. okay, well, there, here's an opportunity. Why don't we create high-performing skincare and cosmetics that are also significantly safer for health? And I say safer because we don't have all the answers. No one does. But we've removed almost 1,600 ingredients from our formulations. And I think we really led the charge in clean beauty. Absolutely. There's no question that that was the case. So I also read that you were originally planning on tweaking existing formulas and products, but that you very quickly realized that it would be impossible to do that. So how did that process work? And then at what point did you decide, I have enough information, I'm going to start raising money to fund all of this? So they kind of went hand in hand. So in late 2010, I approached I, – I was at a dinner party with a guy named uh, Brian Wolf who helps run an entertainment law firm. I was saying maybe I should go do this at, you know, within one of the agencies. And he's like, no, 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 come, come talk to us. And so I went and talked to his partners and I said, look, I've got this idea. I know this makeup artist. I think that this is going to be a thing and it's important for our health. And they said, we'll give you the first couple hundred thousand dollars to get this thing off the ground and go out and do some research. And so we partnered from the you know earliest days and I started looking at the marketplace. And then after a little while, we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> so we're going to take put toxic skincare on and then put on safe makeup. That doesn't make any sense. So we said we got to start with skincare. And so we started researching it and really quickly realized when we talked to chemists that it's not so easy. You can't just switch an ingredient out. I mean, that, that's one of the challenges for all the traditional companies, all those big conglomerates and, and individual brands, the incumbents, is that it's not like clothing. And you change one ingredient from the other, and it can change the smell, the viscosity, the, the the performance. And so it's hard for people to make these changes. So that was a huge wake-up call. And it took us like two and a half years just to get the first products into the market. I also had no idea what I was doing. So I was constantly trying to, oh, I think I had that friend that worked in the hair care division of this company. Oh, let me call that person. I was always trying to find people who could help me. And no one was talking about clean beauty. So mm-hmm. the manufacturers thought I was crazy. How did you even find some of those manufacturers? Like, how does that work because I feel like that's the part, too, that is very, like, behind the curtain. So when it came to contract manufacturing, again, I literally knew nothing about beauty. I found a chemist through the Environmental Working Group, and he had done a lot of the formulations for Whole Foods and other brands over the years, and he introduced me to the first few contract manufacturers. And then I found a consultant through him who could help me with some other ones, and, you know, I started to piece it together. And I think we picked some of the right ones and some of the wrong ones at the beginning, but... That's how yeah. that goes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so how was it trying to raise money for this project? Was it different than the last time you'd raised money? I think it was actually, it's interesting because it actually wasn't that hard for me to raise money. I think that I was a, well ahead of the curve, but not so far ahead as I was with the wedding list that people couldn't <laughs> understand the concept, right? We, we, I was drafting off the food movement. You know, people, yeah. they're starting to think about, hmm, what are those food dyes or talk about things like Roundup and why are these pesticides in our, in our products? And so I think that people understood that, and beauty is a big business. I think the raising of capital was far easier than convincing contract manufacturers and chemists to work with me on new in- ingredients and to make product for us. Really? Yeah. Why Much do you harder. think there was that hesitation? 
Did they think it couldn't be done? Yes, they thought it couldn't be done. They were hassled by it. They used to call us brutal counter. They hated working with us. They made a lot of money doing things the same way way with the same ingredients over and over and over again. They had a formula. Michael, who runs product for us, always says, Greg, it's like you go, it's as if you went out to the best restaurant in town and had chocolate cake last night. You come back and you're like, that was the best chocolate cake. I need you to make it for me by tomorrow without flour, chocolate, eggs, or sugar. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, that's what you're asking them to do. Make it work. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Now, Now they like us because we've sold so many products. Yeah, exactly. So who were some of those early hires, and how did you know who to hire at that point? One of the things I think that's been most challenging about Beauty Counter is that I needed a whole bunch of people who knew far more about everything than I knew, and on top of it, came from polar opposite points of view in life in general. You had a makeup artist in Christy Coleman who was an incredibly well-respected makeup artist, and really the first of her kind who, who was ever 100%. interested in clean beauty, period, when no one else cared and thought it was Full silly. Stop. Full stop. Thank you for giving her that credit because she pioneer. absolutely was. So she was a real pioneer. She was the first true makeup artist to clean up her kit. So I, I her. I had Mia Davis, who now works for Credo, who's great, who who was, you know, and. An, serious activist and, and an angry activist in some ways. Like she was like frustrated with the world about that. So you have those two. Then we, we decided to go direct to consumer through both an e-commerce platform, but also through independent consultants. So I had people who had been in e-commerce and direct sales and traditional retail and beauty. I put all these people together in one room and be like, okay, I'll go play ball together. I mean, it was, you know, it was hard. I mean, we, we, we had different points of view. I mean, you know, it's... I, Having come out of New York and, you know, like if you work in a fashion company or maybe when you were at Elle, in general, most people, they kind of think the same way. They like the same things. This was not the case at Beauty Counter. We had people who had polar opposite views on just about everything. And that was hard. It still is today. That tension still exists and it needs to. So you just mentioned a bunch of things that are very unusual about Beauty Counter. When you were starting out, you did things differently. You had your never list. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, our never list was uh, the list that we published when we launched in 2013, uh, which is the, a list of ingredients that we will never choose to formulate with. It was ingredients that we thought were linked to health concerns, cancer, reproductive toxicity, neurotoxicity, endocrine disruption. And that was a short list that we wanted to put out there publicly to help you know inform consumers. We always say that one of the biggest pillars upon which we built our business is on education. And so it wasn't just about us formulating with safer ingredients, but helping people navigate the murky waters of an unregulated marketplace. And at least we knew they could download or take that card and shop the market to say, okay, I don't want formaldehyde in my product or I don't want parabens or phthalates. And so that was the beginning of it, yes. So that list has increased since then. Yes. And um, I think it's also important that you took the 1,400 of the chemicals that are banned in the EU and applied that as well, correct? Correct. Because for those of our listeners who don't know, the EU has much stricter laws about what chemicals can be used in personal care products and beauty products, um, especially compared to the U.S. The U.S. hasn't updated their laws about this in 80 years. Yeah, so we haven't updated a major federal law regulating the cosmetics industry in the U.S. since 1938, so it'll be 81 years in June. And what I think one of the things that people don't understand, and I certainly was one of those people, is that the FDA, unlike the food industry, has no ability to really screen ingredients for safety or to recall product in the beauty industry. And beauty 
that's everything. That's everything from deodorant to lipstick to, you, you know this, to bubble bath to sunscreen it's, it's, and everything in between. So when we went out to create our Neverless, we looked at, okay, what, who are the, which, which countries are actually thought far? Thought leaders. Yeah, thought leaders. And it was the EU was definitely the most health protective. They banned and restricted so many ingredients. So we looked at their 1400. We looked at things like the Clean Water Protection Act. We looked at the Environmental Working Group. We looked at uh, data from leading scientists at leading universities and hospitals around the country over the last 25 years. And, you know, and we also started screening ingredients ourselves. And by the time we launched, I think we had screened like 800 ingredients in our own team and through our own research. So it's always compiling as much information as we can. And I think we pride ourselves on being leaders in this area of really looking at ingredients and understanding, assessing them for safety for human health. And I assume that's an ongoing process. It's an iterative, ongoing process. It is our full-time commitment every single day. So secondly, you didn't take the traditional department store retailer route and instead did D2C, direct-to-consumer, which everyone talks about direct-to-consumer now, but that was still very much early days. But you also created this peer-to-peer selling model, which is a bit like the Avon model or the Mary Kay model. So why did you decide to go that route from the beginning and what has the success story been? Because I think you have over 45,000 consultants now who sell on your behalf. That's a tremendous force. Plus you have partnerships, plus you have your own direct-to-consumer. Why did you decide to make it so complicated (laughs) for yourself? I I think at the end of the day, I wanted to create not just a beauty brand. I really felt like the world didn't need just another beauty brand. What they needed was a movement, and they needed someone to lead to the entire industry to a better place, in my opinion. I felt like the beauty industry has been built on secrets. Some of those secrets are harmful to health. I wanted women to have great product that they loved, and I wanted it to be significantly safer. And I thought, how better to power a movement through, than through people, and, and specifically through women? Not just because they like beauty products, but women, when they're passionate about something, they can move markets. So that was one thing. I think also, in my job at Best & Company, I was working within the department store, you know, construct. And I felt that traditional department store distribution of beauty products was over. I I mean, it was waning and it was going to become obsolete at some point. I still believe that to be true. We are no longer, as consumers, looking for advice from department stores. We are looking to our friends. You know this. You, you run a business that does this all day long. You know, you're, you're going to look at per influence of other – you could be a micro-influencer. It could be a macro-influencer. It could be a content provider. But people weren't shopping beauty that way anymore. I thought on a macro level, the entire consumer marketplace is shifting and it's going peer-to-peer, direct-to-consumer. That's interesting. We have, we have a movement that needs to be built and we can power that through people – I honestly did not set out to empower women. That was like the byproduct of, of my mission of getting safer products into people's hands. And when my friend said to me, have you considered direct sales? I was like, hell no. I mean, I knew nothing about it. Yeah. It's not my world. But I have to say, it's been the best decision that I've ever made. That's exciting. So something else that you did that's not exactly standard practice is you started focusing on regulation in your industry, <laughs> which is truly, I can't tell you how counterintuitive that is for most entrepreneurs, though obviously it's very understandable considering how long it's been since Congress passed any sort of legislation when it comes to the beauty industry. So... What's going on with it's bipartisan supported, the Personal Care Product Safety Act? What is actually happening? And I know government moves very slowly. You do not. 
How do you work through that? <laughs> well, it's funny. I remember the first time I went to Capitol Hill, I was like, how do these people deal with this? This is like the slowest, most like frustrating process molasses. ever. I want to blow my brain. <laughs> yeah. I was super frustrated. I mean, I think I think what's important about the Personal Care Product Safety Act is it's it's acting on some of the things that are most important in terms of cosmetic reform. As you said earlier, there is bipartisan support for cosmetic reform. Now, what shape that takes is that's yet to be determined. There are differences of opinion. But I think what everyone can agree on is that the FDA needs to start screening ingredients for safety before the products are put on the shelves. And so this act actually calls for a number of ingredients to be screened every single year. And it also, and I think almost most importantly, gives the FDA the power to recall product when they do find that there is something that is harmful to health. And we have a a number of examples of companies, especially like there was, you know, a hair straightening company. A lot of people were getting that sort of Brazilian blowout. Those those straightening, uh, they may be fine for you if you get it once in a while. I mean, not fine, but not as harmful. But if you're the person that's working in a salon and you're actually doing that every single day, people were getting really, really sick, and the FDA couldn't do anything about it. I mean, it's unlike if there's a salmonella outbreak. You know, but, like, there's formaldehyde. For, there was up to 40% formaldehyde in that, and people were getting incredibly sick. And the reality of the situation is that the FDA can't do anything about it. That's insane. It is crazy. So when I started Beauty Counter, I said from day one, and you asked me about raising capital earlier, I said... I just want you to know I'm going to take this all the way to Washington. And if you don't agree with that, do not invest in Beauty Counter. We, you know, we're a B Corp. We care about this issue. And we're going to change the laws. And I also think that I want to be an example of a company that actually can prove that that regulation does not stifle innovation. And I think that our, our it is our responsibility to show that you can do well and do good. You can build a really successful company financially, which we have, and simultaneously impact the world and make the world a better, safer, healthier place for everyone. And I think that that requires you know us going to Washington because at the end of the day, you know, our mission is much broader than Beauty Counter. I always say we educate first, which means if you go buy someone else's product and it's cleaner, thank God. Thank God that you're doing that and putting a safer product on your body. But until we have more comprehensive legislation, Americans will still be subjected unnecessarily to harmful ingredients. That's just not acceptable. And I wanted to do something about that. And so that's been a big part of our work from day one. We have a whole team dedicated to that. Wow. Okay. So... It's been reported that you have raised over $80 million. What parts of the business have you allotted the majority of the money to? And what are the biggest lessons that you've learned through that process? Because, you know, we've done several rounds. It's interesting. Like, you always have an idea of what you're going to fund next with it. Sometimes it works exactly how you want it to. Sometimes something else comes out of it. So where have you really concentrated the majority of that money and what have you learned? In the beginning, it was really about uh, product, right? It was mm-hmm. R&D. How do we create high-performing products? How do we figure out which ingredients are safe? How do we invest, invest, invest in testing and learning? I mean, I, there people would argue we spend too much money on that, but I feel like that's the DNA. That's the only reason we exist. And so that's really important. I think recently, in our most recent round, we really focused on how do we amplify our message. How do we get? How do we reach more people? How do we educate more people? How do we get our products into more people's hands? How do we build a brand that's also a movement? And how do we invest in the technology and in, in the tools to actually utilize our network of independent consultants who are all in their own rights influencers? I mean, we have you know, 45,000 women, but those 45,000 women can make, reach many millions of people and really focusing on the movement and the brand and continuing to, to focus on our mission is how we spend the money. I think we've made a million mistakes. I have made a million mistakes. I mean, I've wasted so much money going down rabbit holes. And I think that comes, you know, one of the things I think that I've gotten much better about, and I think it's a mistake that many entrepreneurs and slash visionaries have, I'm not necessarily calling myself a visionary, but I think I do see 
the possibilities of where things can go mm-hmm. is that we have a lot of ideas. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we can go down, you know, I want to pursue it. I want it all and I want it all now. And you end up wasting money. So I've gotten much more, become ruthless about prioritization. It's taken me many years to get there. But I think that now we're trying to be much more conscious of the dollars that we spend and really trying to think about what's the return on that investment? Is that actually both in time and money? I think the other thing that entrepreneurs make the mistake, or we all make this mistake, you look at, okay, it's going to cost us $52,000 to do that. But what we don't think is what's the lift to the organization? How many people? How many hours? How many weeks? What is that taking us away from? What are the legal bills associated with it? All that stuff. I mean, right. It's like it's like you go to buy a house and you think, well, the house costs X dollars, and then I was like, but oh, but you forgot this, and this, this. And, the, and you, you know, the and the plumbing broke the day one, and you forgot that there's a real estate broker fee, and you got the moving truck. I mean, all that stuff adds up, and I think that's where we've become much more disciplined. And when I look at, you know, if I could do it all over again, or if I ever do it all over again, you know, I'll be much more focused on all of the costs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there aren't that many women who raise money. Unfortunately, it's getting better, but there just aren't enough. What is something, what advice would you give women who are interested in the fundraising process but nervous? Or what do you wish that they knew that they don't? I think the thing that I wish every woman knew, and certainly those of you who are thinking about raising money, is first of all, you have everything that you need to be successful. You yourself, just as a person, as a woman, you've got this. And we as women oftentimes doubt ourselves. We don't have the confidence to ask for the order, to state our objectives. We get nervous. We, we, we second-guess ourselves. And that's because the world's told us to do that all, often. But I'm here to say, don't second-guess yourself. Your gut is right and go for it. And I think in terms of raising capital, I think that we also need to, you know, when you're out there raising capital, you're always going to be, it's always going to be a disproportionate number of men. That's just life. But let's be real. Who controls all the purchasing in this country? We do. Who controls the consumer marketplace? We do. And if you have an idea, you're the you're the expert in that area, whatever area you're working in, and you go out there with confidence and use the fact that you're a woman to your advantage. I mean, instead of looking at it as a liability, think about it as an asset. You know, figure out how you work that room. and You're a better listener more often. You typically have a higher level of emotional intelligence. I'm sorry if their men would disagree, but I would argue that we are good negotiators. We're good at people. We understand. We listen. And I think those things can serve you incredibly well when you go out to raise capital. And confidence is the name of the game. Absolutely. So what kind of boss are you? A tough one. I think I'm extremely demanding of myself and everyone around me. I think people would say that I'm incredibly direct. You either like that about me or you don't. At least you know where you stand. I mean, I'll just say it as it is. I've gotten better and better about that, but I've always been direct. I, I appreciate that. I think in the beginning, certainly with Beauty Counter, I tried really hard to keep everyone happy, and that actually is worse. And I think I was scared of being perceived as being tough or bitchy, but the reality is clear, concise communication is incredibly important, and I'm getting better and better at that every day. How do you work on that? Well, I now have an executive coach, but for a long time, I think it's it's being willing to look in the mirror and to take the constructive criticism from your peers and say, okay, like when I do my employee reviews now, like of my immediate direct reports, I'll say, okay, now I need you to tell me how I can better serve you. I believe in servant leadership. I do believe that my job is not to have everyone fulfill my dreams, but to help through fulfilling other people's expectations and needs and desires. And I don't always do it perfectly, but I think if they're successful and they feel that success, then it's going to make me successful too. And so I do believe that I'm there to serve, not just to lead and tell them what to do. I don't believe it in it that way. I think it is a, it's a bottoms-up and top-down and collaborative approach. I think people would say that I'm incredibly passionate and incredibly dedicated and 
that they will follow me because they know that I'm authentic and I care. That doesn't mean that they don't hate me sometimes. I think <laughs> my old partner uh, back in the day at the wedding list said, you know, Greg, you have just incredibly unrealistic expectations of yourself and everyone around you. But in being that way, you push us farther and make us more successful than we ever thought. And we thank you for that, too. So, it, you know, there are pros and cons. It's a quality my business partner has as well. I mean, she pushes and she it's frustrating at times, but she ends up getting the best out of people. Yeah. And look, I'm incredibly loyal. I love people very, very much. I I think the people that work closely with me, like if the people who really look, that know me would know I would do anything for them. I'm a fiercely loyal person and I I do care deeply. And I think as an organization, we, we're, we're mired in problems. But I do think at the end of the day, we have nice people working at Beauty Counter and we care deeply about our issues. And that is so huge. It doesn't seem like it's that important, but not hiring assholes, man, that goes a long way. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, I say, I look for high confidence, low ego people. We've had too many, you know, egotistical people along the way. It's frustrating. That. And I'm, you know, more and more I'm just taking those people out. I don't want them around me. Yeah, Who you has time it. for it? And by the way, the minute you think you're successful, you should just remind yourself that you're not that successful. Like you can look at your success. Like, you know, those moments, I'm sure you've had them where you're like, I'm on top of the world. I have arrived. And then the next day, like everything goes around. Falls you're apart. like, oh, no, no, I haven't yet arrived. <laughs> and I think that's true. Like the minute you start taking yourself too seriously, like you're going to fail. Absolutely. So we've talked about some mistakes. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge them. Of all of the mistakes that you've made, what do you think is the biggest and oh. what have you learned from it? The biggest mistake I've made for sure was hiring at the time one of my very best friends and losing her in the process because I was – first of all, I, I really think – and I and I know that there are – some people would agree or disagree. I personally think there are enough people in the world that you don't have to hire your best friends. It can work. But so often it doesn't. And I don't know. For me, it's like not worth losing a friendship. And I lost a friend. I lost a really, really close friend through Beauty Counter. She wasn't able to do what I needed her to do. And I didn't handle it well because I loved her so much. And I lost that friendship. And I will regret that to the day I die. Um, we, we've sort of mended things, so to speak. But it'll, it'll never be the same. And I think I handled it so badly because I was scared. And I think, you know, if I've learned something through that, it's it's – it's so much easier when you just own it and you're open and honest and you just say it as opposed to like trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out. If it's not working, just I wish I had just opened up my mouth earlier and said, this isn't going to work. How do we how do we exit this in a way that makes both of us feel great? And I just didn't do that because I backed myself up against a wall by waiting to have the conversation. Well, it's difficult because on one hand, perseverance is what gets us where we need to go. And despite all of the naysayers and the people who tell us it can't be done, but then at the same time, you also have to understand when you can't just muscle your way through a problem. And it's hard because those two feel connected in ways where you're like, this is my strength, but it's also my weakness. For sure. For sure. So and I, being able to parse when to cut bait can be difficult. It is really difficult. And I think, look, I think that, you know, people are the hardest part about business. I don't care what business you're in. It's a, it, You're in the people business and learning how to navigate relationships. And that, you go back to the very very first question you asked me, what did, what did I major in? I majored in English. And I always encourage people to consider majoring in English. Like, I, you know, you can learn whatever you want in school about business, but it's not going to ever be what happens in the real world. But if you learn how to communicate effectively with people, you will be a successful business person, whether that's in the written form or in oral form or both. It's important. It's an important thing to business. I also think it's one of those things that communication is so interesting to me because I have no ego about it. If I'm not getting through to you, I'll tell you 47 different ways. I'll try it this way. I'll try it this way. I'll try it this way. I'll try it that way. I don't care. I just want to get us on. I just want to 
figure out what that lane is because everyone's unique too. And just because I choose to communicate with you in one way doesn't mean that that's going to be the most effective for you. And I think it's on both parties to really think through, like, am I actually getting through? And if not, how can I get through? Not everyone agrees with me on that, but that's a dance that I am willing to dance. I agree with you. And that's why when I said earlier about women going in to raise capital, what you the thing that you said is so true. It's not it's not a one size fits all. We we interpret information in different ways, but your willingness to you know, lean across the table to say, okay, l- let me say it differently or let me try it another way to use your emotional intelligence and your desire to connect to actually get the other person to understand your point of view or to, for you to understand theirs. I think that's such a that's such a valuable asset that you have and that we can use as women and, and men, but women are, are particularly good at it. True that. <laughs> um, so my last question is a two-parter. Okay. What are some of the biggest life lessons you've learned thus far? And what is the best advice you could give someone who wants to emulate your career? Life lessons. I think that my mom always told me, Greg, you are the cake and everything else is the icing. So when you think about that, what are you doing as an individual to build your own solid, strong foundation, your own cake that allows you to be successful and independent, you know, on your own two feet without without needing anyone else to whatever, whether that's financially independent, whether that's, you know, navigating your career or relationship or having the confidence and building your foundation. And then everything else becomes icing, right? The the relationship, the children or more money or less money, all those things that those are just add-ons to what is already a really strong cake. And so I think that was an invaluable uh, you know, piece of advice for me. Um, I remember my mom, one of the great pieces of advice, it's a little one, which is funny. I remember when I was getting married, she said, this may be the most important day in your life, but it's not the most important day in everyone else's life. So they won't <laughs> remember all the details. So don't, don't, you know, don't stress so much about like the, some matchbox or what the candle looks like. No one cares. <laughs> and I think, I think actually, if you apply that attitude towards life, which is what's most important to you is most important to you, but it's not necessarily to everyone else. So when you're building a business and you're worrying about every single detail and, excru- you know, like just going through excruciating measures to decide is it one one thousandth of, a, of an inch or is it, you know, 10 inches, like people probably don't notice as long as you're generally directionally accurate. So I think that was actually good <laughs> advice. So thanks, mom. Um, and the second question you asked is sort of if someone was trying to emulate my career, I mean, I think at the end of the day, as I've gotten older, I would say the two things that I think have been sort of an ongoing theme for me this year, and I've really been thinking about this a lot, is just confidence. Have confidence in yourself. You can do this. You've got everything you need to be successful. You, I always think that the people who are successful are curious. They're, they're not looking at an opportunity. It's like everything's per- perfect about this one particular opportunity. They're thinking, how can I go in and learn as much as I can in this moment to lead me where I might want to go in the next moment? And you're not going to necessarily know that. But I think if you're curious and you build on you know, one experience after the other, you will get to a place that you're really excited over time. And it does take time. I think a lot of people have this immediate gratification thing that just doesn't always happen. So if an opportunity presents itself, take that, walk through that door, take that chance and know that it will lead you to someplace better and know that it takes a lot of time. And I think in my career, I've had, you know, we've talked about it today. I've had huge successes. I've had huge failures and everything in between. And any successful career has those things. But if you are curious and you follow what you're most passionate about and what, what, what you're determined to get done, you'll have a really successful career. Well, Greg, thank you. Thanks for also, having me. Also, Greg, you're the cake. I'm just going to, I need that as a tattoo. <laughs> that was the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter, Greg Renfrew. 
If you like today's show, as always, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social, and now you can share your life lessons with the community by hashtagging Life Lessons Pod on Instagram. We always want to know who you'd like to hear from on the show, so send in your requests to hello at secondlifepod.com, or you can DM me on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr, and you've been listening to Life Lessons. <laughs>